Uh, so I'll be reading 20, uh, John seven twenty five through 43. 44, sorry. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that, he will, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Shortly after September 11, 2001, when our country was in an especially fragile state, President George W. Bush stood before a joint session of Congress, and as he spoke, he not only addressed our leadership, but he addressed the leadership of the entire world. <clears throat> At that moment, he put forth an ultimatum to the world. Maybe you remember. He said, you are either with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, much was made of that statement, and that statement put much of the world in really a a very precarious position. You know, especially those moderate Muslim countries who may have wanted to support the eradication of terrorism. However, to directly jump on the USA bandwagon was to risk anarchy and rebellion in their own countries. And so there's no doubt that President Bush's words on that day were both powerful and polarizing. He called the world to make a decision. You're either with us or against us. Now, whether that statement by President Bush was a good one or not, that's for individuals and and historians to decide. But if it was anything, it was polarizing. He called the leaders of the world to pick a side. And in the Gospel of John, throughout, particularly in John chapter 7, Jesus calls people of the world to do the very same thing, to pick a side. We're going to see that Jesus is calling us, you and me, the entire world today, to pick sides. 
You know, we're in this in this study of the Gospel of John, and it's taken us forever, and we're going to be here for a long time. And so we're kind of getting comfortable and, and moving here in the Gospel of John. And, and the one thing I love about spending this much time in one book, especially a book that focuses on the life of Christ, is that a book like this and spending this much time helps us to get to know who Jesus is. And we're getting to know who he is through the eyes of John. We've looked at this series, I Am, for a long time, and and we've seen over and over again that that John is pointing us to the deity of Jesus, and that we're spending time with our Savior, and we just got out of spending almost a month and a half in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, He is the bread of life. And if you remember, uh, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at Jesus walking on water. We looked at this discourse that Jesus had about why he was the bread of life. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at this idea uh, in the end of John chapter 6 of what happens when many people abandon Jesus. I mean, that's where we're at. We're in this context. And last week, Denny did a great job taking us through the first half of John chapter 7. And if you missed it, I'd encourage you to check it out. You can get on the website and download the, pot, the, uh, the sermon there because uh, Denny did such a great job of setting the picture and, te- and telling us to really challenging us to take our faith deeper. And Denny reminded us that last, last week, Jesus' half-brothers, you know, those that were raised with him and had spent time with him, the, the half-brothers sort of, in chapter 7, the beginning, they made a political action committee. They said, okay, there's obviously something really awesome about our brother that everyone likes, and they're saying, you know, Jesus, we need to figure out how to get you in the limelight and, and do what famous people do. And, you know, and they're trying to sort of leverage Jesus for their own good. And, and they want Jesus to be famous. They didn't actually believe. His brothers didn't actually believe in Jesus. They just wanted him to do what, you know, politicians and famous people are supposed to do. Be in the limelight. So they say, Jesus, everybody who's anybody is going to go down to Jerusalem for the feast. Okay, and so Jesus, you need to go down to the feast and be where all the people were were. And Jesus says no to this. He says, no, I'm not going with you. Now, later on, Jesus goes by himself. He shows up about halfway through the feast. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because Jesus understood if he went with his brothers, they were going to do everything in their power to make him famous and put him into, into a position of power. And Jesus had a different plan. But later on, Jesus does go to Jerusalem. And, but he kind of went in secret for a couple of reasons. First of all, they were trying to kill him. Uh, the Jews were. And so, you know, that maybe not the place you want to be where, where everyone is trying to kill you. But uh, second of all, Jesus knows that when he does go to Jerusalem for the feast, something is awaiting him, and that is conflict. You see, Jesus is a polarizing figure. If you wonder what the word polarizing means, just think of our planet. We have a north soul pole and a south pole that's about as far apart on the planet as you can get north pole and south pole that's about as far away from you and the idea of being polarizing is just to send people to the far opposite extremes of opinions on a matter there's a lot of polarizing things in this world we'll start with apple people who like apple products love their apple products right and people who don't like apple thomas Keckler. uh they don't like Apple, right? I mean, there's not a lot. I mean, there's a few of you that go, hey, it's a computer. I don't really care. But for the most part, people love one or hate, you know, love the other. It's a polarizing thing. Politicians are polarizing. I mean, people really hate them 
or they really love them. I read an article this week about Barack Obama. He is the Antichrist, according to this article, right? You can't get more than one thing on, you know, more than one far end of the spectrum than that. I read another prayer request at a church that I was at, and the prayer request said, Will pray, please praise for uh, Emmanuel Barack Obama. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. That's the name for Jesus. So, I mean, basically this person is saying Barack Obama is like the Messiah, right? You can't get any farther away than that. Two opinions, right? I mean, he's polarizing. A lot of politicians are polarizing. Puppies, on the other hand, are not polarizing. Right? Most people I know, you know, either love puppies or, you know, whatever. I don't want one, but they just feel indifferent or they love them. Right? There's not a lot of people who hate puppies. And if you hate puppies, something is wrong with you. Okay? Right? There's just not a lot of people who hate them. Cats, on the other hand? Am I right? People love cats or they hate cats. Now, I don't know why anyone would, you know, love the hairball things. But if you're a hairball lover... Uh, we're on opposite poles on that deal, all right? See, you know, I mean, there's things that are polarizing. There are things that are not. And if Jesus is anything, he's polarizing. In John chapter 7, we can, if we were to take this whole passage, we, we split it in half, but if we were to take this whole chapter in one week and look at it, we would see this, this passage split into three sections by three particular statements. I'm going to throw this up here. The, the, the structure of John 7 is really separated by three polarizing opinions. And those, those, those dividers, they end each section. Verse 12, verse 30 and 31, and verse, verse 43. Look at these. Let, let me just highlight these for a second and, and read these with you. Uh, verse 12, it says, this is what Denny dealt with last week. It says, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. I mean, do you see the polarizing? People have formed a vast different, have vastly different opinions about Jesus. Look at verse 30 and 31. At this time, they tried to seize him, arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, Will he do more miraculous signs than this man? I mean, you got two vastly different opinions. Verse 43 forms the, really the third section of the text, the third ending of this section. It says, the people were divided because of Jesus. I mean, do you see how Jesus is an absolutely polarizing figure? In verse 12, they say, he's a good man. And others say, no, he's a deceiver. In verse 30 and 31, they say, seize him. Let's arrest him. We hate him. The others say, no, let's embrace him as the prophet. And in verse 43, it says the people were just downright divided by Jesus. Jesus is a very polarizing figure. And you know what today he's doing? Today he's telling you and I to pick sides. He's calling you to pick sides. John 3 asks, uh, really causes us to ask three questions about Jesus, at least it does in my mind when I read this passage. And, and these are going to form the structure of, of the message today. Three questions that really Jesus forces us to ask about him through John chapter 7. And the first question is simply this. If you read and you see all these opposed, people opposed to Jesus, why would anyone be against Jesus? 
I mean, really, when you think about that, why would anyone be against Jesus? So some of us look at Jesus and go, I mean, Jesus is a nice guy and he does great things. I mean, who could be opposed to Jesus? Isn't that kind of like being opposed to puppies, right? I mean, who can do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons that people were opposed to Jesus and are today. If you think about it, Jesus was uncompromising in his mission. He was uncompromising. He knew why he came. He knew his purpose for being here. And he wasn't going to compromise to suit anybody's needs. Just because they wanted them to. Jesus wasn't swayed by opinion polls and by popular movement. He didn't take a church vote before he decided to go to Jerusalem, right? Jesus was unswayed in opinion. And he was, by opinion, he was uncompromising in his mission. And today, there is a huge pressure for us as a church to modify our mission. Danny talked about this last week, and he had a great rant about it, and I'm not going to go on and on like he did. You just got to listen to the audio. It was really good. All right, there's a pressure to modify our mission. Some people say, you Christians are so arrogant. You're so arrogant. Believing that Jesus is the only way. Some people say, I don't want to go to church and hear these messages from the Bible. Just give me the feel-good thing. Jesus was uncompromising in his mission. He was also uncompromising in the truth. Jesus did hard things, and he wasn't afraid if they offended people. In chapter 5, if you were to take this, this uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7 all together, okay? If you were to take this all as one big chunk, you can see in 5, 6, and 7 that Jesus is really on trial. Not formally in a courtroom, but that's how he's approaching it in 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 5, he does something that ticks people off. He heals someone on the Sabbath. And for the Jews, that was a no-no. You don't do anything on the Sabbath, right? Chapter 5, he ticks everyone off. Chapter 6... Chapter 5, he does hard things. Chapter 6, he says hard things. In chapter 6, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, that's, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. And then in chapter 7, he says something that just, again, ticks everyone out. He says, he says if you want to find out who I am, you have to figure out if my teaching is directly from God or just if I'm making this all up. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, if someone says today, you know, like the Blues Brothers, we're on a mission from God. You know, if they say that, that you know, I've, God has spoken to me and I'm telling you what he wants for you. I mean, we sort of go, eh, what, okay, where's the Bible? Where is it? Show me where that is in the word of God. I mean, we sort of look at people weird. Can you imagine the audacity of Jesus to say, I get my preaching directly from God, from heaven, from above. I mean, he would just take people off all the time. He's polarizing. You see, the, the truth of the matter is that the truth always brings in enemies. There will always be enemies of the truth. Jesus is a polarizing figure. You know, why would anyone be against Jesus? We have to remember that Jesus wasn't crucified accidentally. Right? Or it, it's not as if he just kind of, well, okay, Jesus, if you say that you want to be crucified, we'll have to do it. It's not like Jesus was tiptoeing through the t- tulips and had these people and they were singing, you know, glee songs together and choreography and everyone loved Jesus and everyone surrounded Jesus and Jesus is just awesome. And then one day Jesus said, well, you guys, for me to accomplish my mission, you have to kill me. And they said, 
Oh, really, Jesus? But we really like you. We don't want to kill you. I know, but you have to kill me. Okay, well, if you say so, we'll kill you. But we know you'll rise again, so it's all okay. I mean, this is not what happened with Jesus, right? Jesus, as John is letting us know, made enemies from the get-go because Jesus spoke truth from above and he was uncompromising in the truth. Jesus had enemies. And it shouldn't surprise us that when Jesus' followers also have enemies. It shouldn't be surprising to us. You know, Jesus said as much. If it happened to our master, it'll happen to us. People tried to kill Jesus repeatedly. They tried to kill him all the time. They're doing this. And yet, in verse 30, we read this really interesting thing. In verse 30, it says, At this time, they tried to seize him, arrest him. I mean, the point is, let's kill this guy and get rid of him. But no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. That phrase, his time has not yet come, is repeated over and over and over in the book of John, in the gospel of John. Jesus says it to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. It's in, in John chapter 7 and 8, it's used four times. Three times right here in 7. Every time someone tries to kill Jesus or arrest him or do him harm, it says his time had not yet come. Later on in the Gospel of John, when we get to the end, it's just this really cool moment where Jesus is arrested and John says, the hour has come. You see, uh, people are going to be against Jesus. But this phrase that his time had not yet come reminds us that God is sovereign. Jesus' enemies wouldn't prevail a moment before God allowed it. God is in control of every battle, and God is in control of the war. And as followers of Jesus, you can honestly say that your time will not come a moment before God says. If we are persecuted for Christ, it will not be out of the sovereign hand of God. I mean, it would have been, the disciples fretted when Jesus died. They said, how could something like this happen to us? Our master, the one we followed, how could this happen? But it wasn't out of the sovereign hand of God. And if we are persecuted for Christ, it won't be. Why would anyone be against Jesus? It'd be against Jesus because he's controversial. And the more people begin to understand about Jesus, the more polarizing he becomes. If they persecuted our master, we shouldn't be surprised when they persecute his followers. The more you learn about Jesus, the more you'll understand that he's a polarizing figure. That's why people are against him. Second question we're forced to ask is this. Am I for Jesus or against him? I mean, let's personalize it for a second. Am I for Jesus or am I against him? I mean, if you were to look again at verse 40 and 41, let me just read it again. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet or the prophet. In particular, they had in mind the Messiah. Surely this is the one. And others said, yes, he is the Christ, which is the Greek for Messiah, same word. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? You see, the people are saying on the one hand, no, he's not. Yes, he is. And the Jews figured out really quickly when it came to Jesus, they were forced to pick sides. Jesus isn't saying, he isn't just saying, okay, guys, um, I'm the Messiah, so put the crown on my head and, you know, just let go. He's making, a, a, he's making 
a major, major methodological change in how the Jewish people were to understand their relationship with God. It's not about laws and rules and endless efforts to please God. Denny talked a little bit last week about this festival, the reason that Jesus went down to Jerusalem for this festival halfway through. And and some people call it the festival of booths, and other people call it just different festivals. Booths meaning tents, you know. They lived in tents. It was a a chance for them to, to remember the time in the wilderness. And as Denny pointed out last week, they lived in tents and they grilled out, you know. I mean, what a great party to be at. And they celebrated the Israelites in the wilderness. And Jesus' coming is a complete change on the paradigm of how they should worship God. To quote, you know, the sage Thomas Cackler, he said, it's as if Jesus were saying, hey guys, I'm here for the Jewish feast. I've showed up, I'm here, and look, I brought a ham. I mean, it's like as Jesus is changing everything and the rules of everything. You know, for most people, that would be like, you know, awkward, awkward moment. A lot of people want to hold on to the old paradigm. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm fulfilling all these things. And Jesus is a polarizing figure. He forces people to pick sides. And you and I are forced to ask the question, whose side am I on? Most people never ask that question. Most people don't. And I wonder if you've really ever stopped to ask yourself that question. You think, well, Dave, duh. I'm in church, right? You know, I even come to church at a school. I get extra points for that, right? I mean, of course, I'm on Jesus' side. You think, Dave, that's a no-brainer. I'm here, right? Really? I mean, I thought the Jews would say the same thing. Of course, I'm on God's side. Of course, I am. I've been in Jewish school since I was like three. I've got more Bible memorized than you and I could ever pray to memorize. I mean, you know, these guys thought they had it all together and they never stopped to ask themselves, am I really on God's side? Have you ever stopped and asked yourselves that question? I mean, think about these things that the Jews were wrestling with. On the one side, some of them said, Jesus is the prophet. On the other side, they say, no, he's not. Let's kill him. In that second half of 41, look at it, it says, Still others said, how can the Christ, again, Christ is a word for Messiah, right? How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem in the town where David would live? And realize that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They thought he was from Galilee. They knew the scriptures and they said it doesn't make sense to us. They knew Jesus' birthplace. They knew his family lineage, etc., etc. They knew the scriptures upside down, backwards and forwards but they miss Jesus. And I just wonder for you and I, is it possible that we're so surrounded by Christian ease and Christian talk and Christian words and we listen to Christian radio and we've got all the phrases down and the whole thing down and we've never stopped to ask ourselves, did I actually get so wrapped up in church culture that I missed Jesus? Am I for Jesus? Or against him. Now, most people today don't want to ask this question. Most people today don't say, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus isn't polarizing. No, 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 no. No, Dave, I, I have a nice place for Jesus. He fits right into my system, okay? And I have this nice place, Jesus. And, you know, can't we just get along? 
You know, they sort of want to make this place. It's called tolerance. You know, it's a buzzword today, right? But people are picking sides less and less and less. They think, well, I'll be somewhere in the middle. We live in a culture of tolerance. We live in a culture where no one wants to have an opinion. No one wants to offend anyone. No one ever wants to be polarized or pick sides. But Jesus requires it. Last weekend, I, my family was gone because Clarissa had a family wedding and our girls were in the wedding. And so we uh, had to go into Illinois for that wedding. And, uh, and the wedding was in this church building. It was built in 1924. Now, at this wedding, I had no responsibilities, okay? Which is rare at a wedding for me. Normally, I'm up front running around doing something. My responsibility was to just sit and be patient and wait. And so I'm sitting, we walk into this building that had been built in 1924. It was gorgeous. I mean, it had all these pews in it, and this stained glass on the side was amazing. The entire ceiling was made of canvas paintings that were, I mean, been there since 1924. The stained glass, it was unbelievable. This building, and, and you know, I'm sort of, we talk a lot about how the church isn't a building, it's people, and so we walked into the church, and my girls, of course, said, wow, and I said, girls, is this a church? This is a quiz, and they know, no, dad, the church is people, the church isn't a building, you know, they know the answer, right? <laughs> gonna get that, if I don't do anything else, you're gonna know that. So I'm sitting there, the, the rehearsal's going on, and you know, I'm bored, and but I'm just kind of mesmerized. I, I want to know more about this structure because someone built this thing to glorify God in some ways. And, you know, let's figure this out. And so they had a welcome packet there. In the, and, and as I sit in the pew and I took and I start reading about this church. And it's very interesting, this church. And so I'm reading about the, the service and the whole deal. And I pulled this quote right out of the bulletin. In speaking of the worship service, it said the intellectually and emotionally stimulating message is a layered tapestry weaving a parable or a Bible verse together with the wisdom and experience of poets, saints, and martyrs from Christian, Islamic, Jewish, Hindu, or Buddhist faith. And then you start looking at the new paintings they've put. And you see Native Americans, and you see Hindus, and you see religion from the East all centering around. And I wanted to throw up. Like, I thought that would probably be rude in the rehearsal to just, like, throw up. But I'm like, like Clarissa, Clarissa, you've got to see this. Shh, shh, shh. be quiet. I'm like, you can't believe. Like, I'm in a place that I, I've heard of these places. But they actually do this. They actually have said, we don't want to take a side on Jesus and offend everyone. So there is no truth. We'll just sort of take a little bit from here and a little bit from there. We'll put a nice story together. And in the end, you can feel good about yourself. You see, we don't want to take a side on Jesus. And in not taking a side on Jesus, you take a side. And the side is against him. When a church loses the uniqueness of Christ, that church, she loses God. No one wants to offend, but Jesus offended people all the time. And watch how this has crept into even our, our language, right? You're sitting with a Bible study. There were some people and and you, you look at the text and you say, well, I don't know about you, but what I think this says, this text says to me, this feels like this is saying this interpretation or that, you know, but, you know, I don't want to offend you or I don't want to say that you're wrong. Right. And this just to me, and it can mean something else to you. It's OK. 
I mean, this, this language creeps in. We're so afraid of offending that we don't take a side and in taking a side, we, and not taking a side, we take a side. Jesus is looking for followers who are all in. There's no neutral ground. Occasionally I see this, uh, you know, World Texas Hold'em poker tournaments on TV. And, uh, you know, I mean, these guys have all this money on the table. And, I mean, it's just the most ridiculous thing in the world. They got their sunglasses upside down and, you know, it's all serious. And it's just the most ridiculous thing. But at one point they take all their big stack of chips and they put in the middle and they go all in. Now, I'm thinking how silly to put everything on a set of cards that you're just wasting your time. But you've got to love the all in, right? You've got to love the thing. I, I wish there were more Christians like that who just were all, were all in. I said, I, I, I pick a side. I choose. I'm all in. Am I for Jesus or against him? The third question it forces us to ask is, what happens if I do choose Jesus? I mean, what happens if I do say, okay, you know, he's polarizing, I choose Jesus. This is really fascinating. See, so Jesus goes down to the feast, and on verse 37, the first part of it, it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's teaching. The feast was seven days long, okay? And this feast, as I said earlier, celebrated the time in the wilderness. In an arid country, you've got to understand that water is a premium. Can we take water for granted, right? We go to the faucet and turn it on. Um, in Atlanta, a few years back, they didn't take water for granted. Remember that drought that hit them and, you know, everyone had dead grass. And, you know, it was like, can we can afford enough water to flush my toilet and the lake's draining? And that's the kind of culture that Jesus lived in. So in an arid country, water is at a premium. And every day of this festival, a procession of priests would go down to the south side of the city of Jerusalem, to the wall, and there was the spring of Gihon there, okay? And they would take this gold pitcher thing, and they would take this water, and in this great procession, they'd scoop up the water from the spring, and they would walk it back to roughly the middle of the city where the temple was. And they would go into the temple. All the while, the people, the crowds that are there are singing, Right? They're singing songs, they're singing psalms and different passages of scripture from Isaiah and from the psalms. And they get back to the temple and they get to the altar and the people are gathered all around the temple and they're singing. And in this great celebration, the priest takes the water and he pours it over the altar. Now, on the last day, which was the greatest day, that was the big poobah, right? These, uh, the, these priests, the whole procession of them would go down and they would do this thing seven times. And it's in the midst of this that Jesus speaks. And Jesus' words, when you think of him in light of this procession that's taking place with this life-giving water is being poured over the altar seven times that day. And when you think of what Jesus' words... Now, now, now read what he says. He says, in a loud voice, verse 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. I mean, isn't that awesome? Jesus says, listen, you, you need rain. I'm the rain giver. I'm the life giver. It's not the spring that's on the south side of the city. It's me. I'm the life giver. Now, what is the life that Jesus gives? John does a little commentary for us. In verse uh, 39, John tells us, by this... 
He means the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. All right, I need to give you a little background on this, okay? Um, some of you know this, but if you don't, it's important, okay? In the Old Testament, up to the time before Jesus was glorified, here's how the Holy Spirit was at work in the world. The Holy Spirit was alive and work, but the Holy Spirit would come and fill people temporarily. You see this with King Saul. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers him. That's why David, in, in, after he sins with the Bathsheba incident, that's why David says, God, uh, cast me not away from your presence and take not your spirit from me. Because David understood how the Holy Spirit worked at that time. He came, he left. But when Jesus comes and Jesus dies and glorified those who believe in him in the New Testament, in this age, those who believe in Jesus get the Holy Spirit permanently. He's a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. That's how the Spirit works. And so what John is saying is, okay, listen, you have to understand that this is the Spirit that's to come. He will come. He will indwell. He will seal. He will glorify the Son and the Father. And so if you want to have this kind of life, there's some requirements. The first requirement is that you have to be thirsty. Um, On Memorial Day, I was working outside and... I had one of these uh, muscle shirts on showing off, you know, the, the muscles I don't have. And, and I was sitting outside, and I got just toasted, right? I put sunscreen on the face, but the arms, oh, you know, it's like glowing red, and oh, it hurts so bad. And, but I didn't realize it. I came in from outside, and I said, I am thirsty. I am so thirsty. There was like this parchedness in me. that I mean, I couldn't drink enough water. And I was full, right? And I couldn't get enough water. I didn't have any more room to put water, but that's how thirsty I was. I wanted more. And that's the kind of thirst Jesus is talking about. If anyone's thirsty, he should come to me because I have the water, the life that doesn't end. So there's some requirements. We have to crave spiritual life. We have to be thirsty. And then just Jesus says, and if you're thirsty and you come to me, you'll be filled You'll grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to fill you and transform you. And then you'll overflow. Be thirsty, get filled, overflow. But here's an observation that John Piper makes, and I'm in agreement with him, is that this isn't necessarily a chronological order. If you want the, as a believer who has the Holy Spirit, you don't have to just sit around waiting to get filled up before you overflow. Don't miss this, because this is huge. I know so many Christians who say, well, you know, Dave, I know I'm supposed to be missionally minded and living out my faith every day when I'm here and there and there. But, you know, I just, I'm a, I still don't know enough about God. And I'm just not comfortable doing that. And God just needs to fill me up a little bit more, and then I'll be ready to overflow. My cup's not full yet. I don't have time or the, really the ability to overflow to others. But see, that's the wrong image. Out of my deck, we have these little, Clarissa has this, these little votive candle holders that they're, they're actually pretty good size and they're in this dish and they sit out on the, on the deck, on the table. And uh, I guess if we want to burn candles, which I, we need to do that. We never burn those candles. Anyway, they're just empty. They're sitting out there. Right. And they function as a rain gauge for me. That's the purpose for me. Right. And they, you know, they just fill up with water and, and uh, you know, I never pay attention. I go out there and, and here's the thing, you know, you should, sometimes we get rain in just little, little bits, right. And a little forms and then I forget to empty it. And a little more fun. And they don't ever overflow because the water kind of evaporates in between. And after like a month of that, 
they're gross. I mean, the water is never really, le- it's like bugs and dirt. and uh, It's just disgusting in there. And it's not like I want to take one of those out and, you know, drink it, right? You know, life-giving water. Give it to the kids, right? You try it first. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it just sits there because the water's never left. It just stayed there and got stagnant. And I think that's the, the analogy applies. But how, how much would, if I would go out after every rain and empty the water and clean out the container? I mean, I could, it gives life. It, I could dump it in the plants and, and give life with it. And, you know, so many Christians who go through life and they say, well, I'm not full yet, so I can't do ministry yet, or I can't be overpowered yet. And then they just sort of never get full, and they just get stagnant and stale and gross. The, the picture of the spring of life is not a cup, right? It's not a cup that has to fill up and then overflow. The picture that Jesus gives is a stream of life. The life is pouring out continually. In other words, as the Spirit fills you, whatever you've learned, whatever you've done, whatever He has poured into your life, whatever that is, no matter how deep or what level, that should flow out to others. We don't have to wait to be filled before we start flowing out. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Do I have that? Galatians 5.22, do they put that up there? Yep. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know what? So many times we go, okay, well, there's my checklist. I'll know I got to work on number three because I'm deficient in number three. So I got to work on that one. And I'll know when I'm ready to overflow when I got the, you know, all the things done. But that's not the, the fruit. Fruit isn't something you make, right? Fruit grows. The spirit causes the fruit to grow, right? As he's working on one in you, let it flow out to others, it's not a checklist. The point of a spring of water is to bless those around you. And you're transformed in the process. This is not hoarding. <laughs> you might think you're not ready to flow into the lives of others, but you are. When you choose sides with Jesus, when you pick sides, when you're all in, you have a life-giving spirit in you that flows out to touch others. I love people who share what God's doing. I mean, I love it when I see people saying to me, oh, Dave, you know what? God's teaching me this. And they just let me know it. That's awesome. They're flowing what God, God has poured something into them, and they're flowing it out. I want to close with this, this story. And I got my wife's permission, okay? Some of you who, you know, tell me that I can't share and you feel bad for my wife. Full permission on this one. All right. So you, many of you know that my wife is uh, a, a labor coach. She's a doula. It's a, someone who goes in and helps women in labor. And, and, uh, and she's awesome at it, by the way. I mean, I just, God has gifted her in so many ways. And so um, she, she goes in and she's got this one family she's there for. And, and it was a rough labor and delivery. And, and they ended up having to have a C-section. And the family was really upset because they really didn't want that. And, um, and she was there. And, and you know, Clarissa was just really able to minister with them in that time that she prayed with them and, and just encouraged them. And, uh, and it was very meaningful. And so this family now, months and months later, have thought, you know, it's really time to come and we want to have some sort of spiritual dedication for our family. In, in our terms, we would call it a dedication, a child dedication. Or, you know, some churches would baptize infants and they're thinking, we want some sort of spiritual ceremony like that. Um, but the problem is, is that they're not believers, you know, and, and they're not believers at all. 
And so they thought, who would run this ceremony? We don't go to church. We don't have a pastor. And so because of the way Clarissa ministered to them, uh, her name popped into their head. They thought, I wonder if Clarissa would run some sort of ceremony. And so in this email she sent Clarissa, I'm quoting, listen to what she says. She says, I'm wondering if you, she says, I wonder if you'd consider doing this little ceremony for us. Then she says, here's what it would need to be like. It would need to be a non-Christian service, not overly referencing service to God. For instance, I believe that service is not to God, but to one another. Uh, That God asks us for good stewardship of friendship, humanity, and the earth. I believe that our choices should should be looked upon kindly by God, but not driven by a desire to please Him. I don't know if this makes any sense or not. Foremost, we believe that the more belief systems our kids are taught, the more tolerant and better able to make their choices. Then she says, when the decision was made for a C-section, you assured me that everything happens for a reason. And as you know, I deeply believe this. I found this comforting in the hours and days and week following that. Additionally, you seem like a spiritually grounded person. Clarissa goes, Dave, what do I do with this? You know, I mean, when she prayed about it, my wife's awesome. You know, I'm thinking, how cool is it that as God is ministering to her, she's overflowing to others. Right. But now she's got to make a choice. Because she understands the very reason that she's perceived as being spiritually grounded is because of her relationship with Christ. And they've just asked her to remove Christ from anything that they're doing. And, you know, in this awesome grace-filled way, Clarissa just said, I feel like I would do you a disservice because I couldn't not, I could not, not mention the name of Jesus. Because he is my grounding. I think that's an example of picking sides and letting the life of Christ overflow into others. I mean, you get all in with Jesus. And you say, and I'm grounded and he's the reason for it. I mean, it's a great example. And I just think of you and your life. I mean, just think about how you interact with people on a daily basis. If Jesus is your grounding You have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, He is pouring into you. And if He is pouring into you, that river of life comes out. So how is it you're a blessing? I mean, how is it? That's call that missional living. You live life with a mission because you think, everywhere I go, I have a chance for a river of life to pour out of me and into the lives of others. It's living life on a mission. And that's my challenge for you today. May you leave here after eating great barbecue that smells amazing. As you leave here today, would you take the life-giving spirit with you and allow him to flow into the lives of others?